This is a Triple J podcast. Look who finally decided to rock up to work today. Came crawling back. I missed you. I was like, I can't handle this anymore. I missed you. I was like alone for so long. You know, two weeks without you feels like a year. Well, because it started off as a normal, we were both sick at the same time. And then it started off as just like a normal cold and then turned into sinusitis. I actually had to fully go on Annie B's. I'm still on them. Yeah. So I'm back. I'm feeling better. That's good. I'm not fully 100%, but I was just like, I can't. Can't live like this. I know. I, I was actually live getting like so bored. And you know what? While you've been away, you've uh, you've got some news to tell us. Oh God. Um, I may have hard launched a relationship. <laughs> <gasps> I know. Seven years in the making. Been single for so long. It's out in the world. Yeah, I went to the Brownlow last night. If you don't know what that is, it is an AFL awards night. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> no more questions. No more questions. No more answers. All right, next. <laughs> all right, we're going to do things a little bit differently for this episode because normally Peep and I come with a topic and we like unpack it together and we play heaps of, you know, parts of experts and you and yeah. um, have a lot of fun doing that. But this whole episode is about consent and we wanted to like really unpack that and we're like how do we do that well we had to get the best in the biz to talk about it if you don't know who she is chanel contos um is an activist who basically single-handedly changed the discourse of consent education in australia herself yeah she's the founder of teachers consent it was a petition to make consent education in australia compulsory it was so huge it had over forty-four thousand signatures and this was all happening in like 2021 yeah um you might remember if you live in australia there was a lot of cultural conversations happening about rape and sexual assault when it came to grace tame australian of the year um britney higgins saxon mullins and yeah chanel was a huge part of that as well And now she's just written her debut book. It's called Consent Laid Bare, Sex, Entitlement and the Distortion of Desire. Which I think is probably one of the first books that I've read that completely captures the nuances and complexities of sexual assault, consent and rape. She talks about the impact of gender and porn and the orgasm gap and a lot of the misconceptions. And so Peep and I were like... Because we in, we I like sat down and interviewed her. She yeah. came into the studio, uh, and we basically were like, we can't. She just said so much that was so valuable. Exactly, and we kind of felt like we couldn't just like cut it up, move it around, jangle it about, like mm. which is what we normally do to keep things fun and interesting. But Chanel is just such an incredible woman, and it just didn't feel right to kind of mess with it. Yeah, it just felt like a really good interview, and we were like. I don't want to take anything away because, you know, a lot of the time we do have to whittle it down and get the best parts, but this whole thing was like the best part. Yeah. So that's why this episode is a little bit different. You are going to just hear the whole conversation that I had with Chanel. And I really think if you haven't started reflecting on, you know, the culture that we live in, a bit of a rape culture and maybe some of your own experiences, I think this conversation will definitely do that. And Obviously, this is a really important conversation for everyone to hear, guys, girls, they, them, whoever, because consent is probably one of the most important conversations that we should be having right now. So yeah, it is applicable to anybody. So just a heads up as well, uh, in this episode, there's going to be talk about rape and sexual assault. Um, So if you're not really feeling up for it, maybe just pass on this for now and you can come back whenever you want. All right, let's get into it. 
sorry, but like what a body of work to be an author behind. Make me really shy, Dean. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious though. Like it is so incredible. Um, I was saying before we jumped on mic that like if I was to think of a book that tries to cover the complexity that is consent and sexual assault and try and, you know, there's just so many pieces to the puzzle. It's so nuanced. There wasn't one thing that I left that book going that was missing. I'm, I'm lost <laughs> for words. <laughs> That's um, really nice. I'm really glad you liked it and that is what I tried really hard to do, so I'm glad that came across. Yay, I'm obsessed with it. Okay, let's talk <laughs> about your journey from the beginning because I remember when your Instagram stories were popping up. I was working for Hack as a reporter at the time and it was 2021 and it was when the Brittany Hegan stuff was coming out. It was when Grace Tame was Australian of the Year. So there were a lot of conversations and a lot of reflection happening around Australia and people were talking about sexual assault and people were talking about rape and people were talking about consent and you posted about this on your Instagram what was happening for you around that time that made you go like I want to ask people about their experiences with sexual assault and consent so weirdly I was living overseas in London at the time and I was studying my master's in gender education and international development And I basically, we got given a reading on sexual coercion in the education system. And then we had a group project that was dedicated to speaking about how sexual coercion was relevant to our context and the way we grew up. And because I was doing an international development course, there were a lot of people on the course from all different, you know, all different backgrounds, all different countries, all different places. And... I like remember really clearly someone going first in this group project and she grew up in a North African country where virginity testing was part of their school education. So like when they were children, teachers would literally check if their hymen was still intact during school hours as part of school curriculum. She spoke about sexual coercion from that context. And then I went next and I was like, shit like I grew up in Sydney's eastern suburbs I went to like an extremely privileged school nothing like that ever happened to me and then I was like except on weekends when we would go to parties with the kind of other local boys and then I started describing the rape culture that I grew up in basically and the types of things we would see and how sexual coercion was prevalent through alcohol through peer pressure through individual pressure and coercion and you know even threats sometimes and this whole group of people were just like absolutely stunned from all different parts of the world saying how could this happen in Australia we thought that Australia was meant to be this you know like ideal happy safe place like we can't believe that's occurring there and I was like yeah I guess that is like quite weird you would think that you know we rank well in terms of all we don't rank well in gender equality but you know most other forms of like development measures Um, And then that made me start thinking about it a lot. And I was also quite frustrated. I was like, why did it take me three degrees to learn what sexual coercion is in any sort of meaningful way? Like, that is so unfair and so unbelievably inaccessible for this definition that's, like, really changed something. And then a few weeks later, at, like, the exact right moment, I had already collected quite a few testimonies from the year before, but I hadn't done anything with them. And then the reason I posted on Instagram was basically because me and my friend who I grew up with we're having like quite an emotional moment together reflecting on all these things that happened when we grew up and I just had this thought process of this is so unfair we're sitting here you know 10 years later feeling this way and they don't even know they did it to us and I wanted them to have to know 
that they've done something wrong and have to feel that guilt in some way. Um, so that's why I posted on Instagram. <laughs> and thank God you did because you got so many submissions. And I think what you did, especially for me as like a consumer or like someone just like, I didn't even know you at the time, but I had specifically remember like writing in and sharing like something or like part of the polls and stuff. And like my friends and I were all sharing it to each other. And I think like what you did with that um, story on Instagram was show that rate isn't just black and white like Mm. I think historically we've always thought of it as this like thing that happens in an alleyway with a scary man but yeah like you kind of show the nuances like you show that there's a spectrum of sexual assault and you kind of talk about that in your book and you really want to encourage people to see that it is a spectrum I think we need to add more nuance to the conversation because the experience of sexual violence is so prevalent all across the world, all across Australia, that there's just no one where we can kind of categorise it. And the pervading stereotype of that, you know, scary man, dark alleyway, whatever, is actually the least likely form of sexual assault that someone is yeah someone is likely to experience it's much more likely to be someone who you know who you trust who you're consensually kissing at the beginning of the night but don't want to be doing something with them later on in the night and I think what I tried to do with those testimonies and petitions and I think why they struck with so many is because it kind of like broke that stereotype and said like oh no actually this also counts as sexual assault and you should feel validated in calling it that and when we understand how sexual assault fits on a spectrum it's also helpful in understanding a hierarchy. I, I mean, it's it's a it's a hard topic to cover because in no way am I saying there is any sort of hierarchy of seriousness mm-hmm. or in terms of how an individual person understands or processes or experiences any form of sexual violence. But I think if we're looking towards a way in which to prevent it, we need to understand that there is a hierarchy of offence. And what I mean by that is there is a difference between someone who has planned an attack and, you know, who has acted with malice versus a 15-year-old boy who's experiencing extreme social pressures from his peers to lose his virginity and he's never been taught about consent and he's only ingested copious amounts of pornography, which has completely distorted his understanding of a healthy sexual relationship or landscape and what actions come from that. You mentioned there that, you know, when people were putting through their stories and when you were putting together the petition that like people kind of now reflect and were like, oh, wait, like that had that what happened to me was sexual assault. And I feel like that's something that's been happening the past couple of years. And you also referred in your book that you even struggled to call what happened to you rape. And I feel like that's something that we all do. We kind of go, oh, no, it has to be that alley man, like assault. But it's like you said, it could be saying no, 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 and then saying yes eventually and being coerced or pressured into it. Why do you think that we, yeah, like struggle so much to call things rape or sexual assault when, like, it, I even struggle to say it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, no, it's I know such what you a mean. hard thing to say. It is. Even like saying the word feels like very, like, yeah. explicit and like a lot it's a loaded word it is the definition of it, it is a, it's also a loaded act obviously but it was interesting in the book I referenced a study where someone was trying to measure the rates of sexual violence somewhere and whenever they use the word like rape or sexual assault 
the numbers were much lower than when they would use things like, have you ever been pressured? Have you ever been threatened? Have you ever been tricked? Have you ever been physically forced? Have you ever had unwanted sex? Like all these different words we use to describe this act. People feel much more comfortable saying them. And I asked my followers on Instagram about this because it was an experience that I had very deeply, whereas it felt very dramatic to say Mm. I've been raped because, again, in our minds, rape equals that stereotype. But the reality is we need to completely throw that stereotype out the window and understand that legally rape is something that can count as oral, coercion counts as rape, all these sort of things. And I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well, but in my mind it's almost as if this is some sort of like mass gaslighting on women that these experiences are like normal and we're just meant to like put up with them as like some sort of experience of womanhood, which is why calling it this thing that is explicitly so illegal feels so wrong to do. Yeah, I think that you covered that when you talk about gender because it's we live in a patriarchal society and I think that when we think about gender, which you define as, you know, a set of socially constructed rules and beliefs to do with but distinct from sex. So if we think about in a binary sense, like if you are girl, woman, boy, man, like there are a set of social constructs and rules like associated to you from birth and one of them which you talk about is the fact that women and girls are supposed to just be like the receiver of sex like Mm. the act happens to us not with us and so I think like gender plays a really huge part in why we find it really hard to talk about these things because from the beginning we're meant to be like people pleasers Mm -hmm. and we're supposed to be like our boundaries are meant to be loose and we're supposed to just like go with the flow and like listen to the man and like we're not meant to make a fuss fuss. and so I think in that sense it's just like oh no it's too big of like I'm gonna make a fuss it's gonna be too big of a deal yeah um it's gonna and you know we're gonna disrupt the other person's life potentially if we like come out now and say that that's what that was Mm. And I think a lot of girls and women feel like it's, you know, I don't want to hurt the other person's feelings or I don't want to make a big deal out of something when, like, worse assaults can happen or yeah, have happened in the past. Exactly. Um, so I really loved that you did a whole chapter on gender because I think, like, it really adds to the nuance as to why we have all had these, like, what you describe as, like, teenage nightmares for, like, a f- you know, But, like, I feel like most people in Australia, like, when I talk to my friends or, like, when I talk to my girlfriends, like, we're always just, like, oh, well, yeah, like, obviously we're all sexually assaulted. Like, do you know what I mean? It's, like, we say it And we laugh about it. we laugh about (laughs) it. I know. I've noticed that so much, like, over, like, having conversations. You're so often laughing when you're having them, which feels, again, like, completely kind of counteracts the idea of how, like, a quote-unquote survivor of sexual assault is supposed to act. It's, like, this idea and this problematic stereotype that like someone will you know forever kind of be defined by that moment which we're like in certain senses they will but it's like I don't understand why we pretend that they are anomalies in our society when Mm. the reality is that so like I would almost argue that every woman in Australia on some spectrum of sexual violence all the way from harassment to rape has been a victim in some sense of the word and like why do we pretend it's an anomaly when it is the norm it is a rape culture this happens so frequently you talk a lot about rape culture um and you actually talk about a pyramid which you've kind of (laughs) touched on then I really want to talk about this because I think it's really important obviously visually it's hard for people listening to kind of picture this but imagine a triangle uh, yeah a pyramid a triangle (laughs) up the top yes literally (laughs) up the top it's like rape 
drugging, molestation, stealthing, which is the removal of a condom, contraceptive sabotage, victim blaming and shaming, coercion, manipulation, threats, revenge porn, blah, blah, blah. Moves all the way down to groping, unsolicited nude pics, catcalling, sexist attitudes, rape jokes, locker room banter, stalking, all of those things. Mm. I really loved that you covered this because I think that when you think about the change that you want to create in this country and hopefully will happen, it's about all of those things right Mm -hmm. like it's not just well I've never raped anyone so therefore it's not my problem it's like all of those things down the bottom that uphold that uphold the things at the top yeah Yeah, talk to me a little bit about how for anyone listening who might think that those things down the bottom are just if you're in a group for example and you heard someone saying something that was kind of sexist how I guess it all adds to the culture we live in that results in so much rape happening So these kind of like consistent microaggressions that are sexist, misogynistic, promote gender inequality, whether it's locker room banter, catcalls at the bus stop, all these sort of things consistently reinforce a gendered hierarchy, which makes behaviours such as, you know, image-based abuse or sending unsolicited dick pics much more normalised, which then makes behaviours such as stalking or groping someone in a club and then that continues to build to a point where acts of sexual assault can occur without them being understood or defined as such so I just want to define rape culture really quickly as well because I think I think unpacking it helps understand it a bit because I think it's kind of one of those words that people think people are just saying it's like a bit of a buzzword and like kind of like radical whatever but a rape culture is a sociological setting where sexual harassment and sexual assault are pervasive and normalised due to society's expectations around gender and sexuality and our attitudes towards them as well. And the key word there is normalised because in a rape culture, acts of sexual assault can occur without people realising that they are wrong or without them being reported or in at such a scale that they become part of the way we function, which is the reality in Australia right now. And then that also ties really nicely to that question you asked before, what you were talking about with all these expectations around gender and how those uphold this culture. You know, women are meant to be passive in sex and our sexuality isn't spoken about in any way. There's lots of taboos around it. And there's expectations that it there's this kind of like, I don't even know where the messaging came from, but it's just kind of like always been a thing that we are supposed to satisfy men. Male sexual pleasure is paramount to all sexual encounters there's a like interesting thing in the book about the orgasm gap and basically like orgasm gap between like heterosexual couples um, lesbians and gay men and conclusion is if you have sex with a woman you're more likely to orgasm and if you have sex with a man you're less likely to orgasm I know I know that stat from the show and I remember reading it in the book and was just like oh yeah like and I think there's a stat somewhere that it, it takes women in hetero sex 20 minutes to orgasm but on their own it's five minutes yeah I mean <laughs> makes complete sense like obviously <laughs> Absolutely, obviously. <laughs> I'm like, that says so much. Yeah. <laughs> it says so much. Um, something that I found really interesting speaking about gender and rape culture and just like the world that we live in is something that I actually have thought about for a couple of years now. But you, 
and I haven't made up my mind about it. I still don't know where I stand on it. But you mention in the book, you quote a um a radical feminist from the 1960s, Andrea Dworkin. Is that how you say her last name? Yeah. Dworkin. Yeah. Who has this idea that because all forms of desire are contained by the structure of the patriarchy, which fundamentally positions women as subordinate, women can't consent to intercourse under patriarchy. Therefore, um, she holds the idea that it's impossible for all women to give meaningful consent in any sexual activity. Obviously, this is a very <laughs> radical idea. I think when I first heard about it or thought about it, I like was like, no, I reject that because it made me feel like I don't have any sort of um, agency in my life and I didn't like that feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I'm keen to hear what your thoughts are about that. I think the way I wrote about it in that chapter is from a very theoretical perspective, which is very different. Like, I think this book is very different in the way I have written and spoke about things uh, in a way that yeah that talking about structures theories being quite radical and the thoughts which is very different to how we practically have to implement things so on like a practical level it's like yes I advocate for consent education because I do believe that consent is can be meaningfully exchanged and of course in an individual situation that is the case but I guess the purpose of writing her work in there and analyzing it and drawing in international development theories about improving people's capabilities to make decisions and the opportunities they have I mean I personally spiral when I think about it like if you start thinking about I won't let myself I think that's why I haven't I think that's why I haven't come to a conclusion like I just won't let myself go I just can't I can't philosophically argue it because I just don't like what I will discover (laughs) I just think that yeah I mean I think I think it's an interesting thing to pose to say that how can we possibly make a distinction between what we think our sexual desires are if they have been completely coerced and dictated by our gendered norms and expectations, by the attitudes towards the sexuality we have as women, by pornography, mm. by a pop like pop culture, by rom coms and the male like, gaze, like and, yeah, literally everything. And I think, I think it is very easy to spiral. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like no we can't consent or anything (laughs) but that's obviously not nice and I think I don't practically think that I'm um it's just yeah it's a I think it's important though to reflect on that to then hopefully improve what you do consent to like certain or hyper analyze why you do certain things yeah right like who is this for? Yeah. And why are you doing it? I mean, I have this with body hair removal a lot as well. Oh, yeah. So mm. I really interesting. I basically got lasered like pretty much everywhere when I was like really young, when I was like a teenager because I'm Greek, so I'm really hairy. And at that time, it was very much removing body hair to meet beauty standards because I, I would have been really self-conscious and embarrassed about like having like, you know, like literal arm hair. And... Now I'm like, I'm not in a position where like my armpit hair grows. So I don't even know if I would grow it out or not kind of thing. And then I'm like, yeah, I think I would. But then I'm like, but would I? And then I'm like, I quite like shave my legs. Like, would I shave my legs? But I I don't know. And I just, I can't figure out where this split is between what I actually want and what has been put on me by beauty standards, by capitalism, by patriarchy. And I think that also like really applies to sex. Like, where do you draw the line between your own desires and the desire we get from pleasing male partners when we've been told that pleasing male partners is the most important thing we can do as women well 
it's like the unknown. It's like <laughs> what we know, what we don't know, we know, and then what we just don't know at all because yeah. it's all like in our brains in like the subconscious and unconscious, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's like the, this is what I mean about the spiral. Like yeah. this is some like 2 a.m. Shit, you know, yeah, like it's too much. It's too, it's too much. <laughs> okay, well let's don't like, think about it. Don't think Just about stop it. Stop there. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to talk about the court system. I think that like when we think about the court system, which is something that you speak about in the book, is that it is really hard to prove sexual assault or rape when it's he said, she said. That's if you've got no evidence, like that's what's upholding in court. Um, and also if you've got no evidence, you can't even get to court. So you actually do need to have a little bit of evidence to even get into that position. And then it's usually still he said, she said. Exactly. And something that you wrote, which actually I kind of took away and I was like, yeah, this is really true, is you said getting a not guilty verdict doesn't equal a false accusation. No. Yeah. And I think there's a massive misconception about that. People go straight away, well, not guilty. Not guilty. To prove something as intimate as sexual assault beyond reasonable doubt in a courtroom is so virtually impossible that Australia has a 1.5% conviction rate, which means that we've essentially decriminalised rape in this country. And I think we have to, like, you know, people are always like, oh, the system's broken, the system's broken. It's like, no, it was built this way. The laws were made laws were made by men for men when the act of rape was an act of damaging another man's property, whether that be her husband, her brother, or her dad. And that has not kept up to date with the way that sexual relationships and women's agency is experienced in Australia in this day and age. I mean, I don't even know how many iterations we can make to the law. I don't even know if it's possible to make as many iterations as it needs to make this something that actually works for justice. I really, truly think we need a whole new system, a whole new restorative justice system, a whole new social accountability system to completely reshape how we hold accountable accountability for these acts. Mm. But obviously this isn't something that's going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. So when yeah. we think about it publicly, when we think about these huge figures, which unfortunately happens a lot um the guy from that 70s show just this Mm. week the johnny depp stuff like there's always a sports star Mm. um like when we think about this as a like public cultural conversation why is it why do you think it is important to think of the fact that not guilty doesn't equal a false accusation because i think when we take not guilty as false accusation, we take that other, what, 98.5% of convictions and think that that means that is usually women lying, making it up. It contributes to a narrative of disbelief, of victim blaming, um, of calling, you know, survivors attention seeking for all of these sort of things. And it gives hesitancy to people coming forward. I mean, that was that was the most overwhelming feeling I felt when in the US, Johnny Depp won his defamation case, was that this is just sending a very, and not just the fact he won, but the social commentary around around it, regardless of the outcome of the court trial. This is just sending the strongest possible message you could to victim survivors to stay silent because it is not worth it, especially for young ones. Like, I mean, I feel like we're a bit older, we're so lucky we kind of have these conversations amongst our girlfriends, like, we feel, I think, a lot like we're having this conversation right now. So we obviously feel like a lot less shame around it. And that shame has just like slowly been shedding off me since like I've been younger. But 
for young people who don't have these conversations amongst friends yet, haven't had consent education, haven't had these conversations with their parents or, you know, whatever, haven't seen media that talks about this sort of stuff, if their only exposure to other victims of sexual assault or, like, you know, people saying they're victims is their TikTok feeds and people, you know, making videos about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in those sorts of ways, what's that going to, like, what's that message saying to them? How can we be surprised that our rates of reporting are so low? At the same time, you know, teachers and parents and the government and police are always like, make sure you report. And it's like, why Why would I do that? when Someone could make a video making fun of me yeah. for doing that. And that's your only other, even though you, you, unfortunately, there would be like many other victim survivors around you. If that's your only experience or understanding of one, then yeah. So you mentioned before that there's so much that needs to change within the court system, which I don't think we're going to see happen anytime soon. Mm. Um, But something that you do talk about is social accountability, which I absolutely love because I've slowly started seeing it happen in my friendship groups. Mm. Um, And you kind of mentioned that, like this idea that someone will do something and then the friendship group will just go like, nah, Mm. you don't like, you don't get to hang out with us anymore you don't Mm. get to go to parties with us you don't get to go out you don't get to go to festivals that kind of thing how can we in thinking that like how can we individually hold people accountable and everyone I guess like Mm. not just like it shouldn't just be on women and girls to be holding people to account I think it's such a tough question because I think that social accountability is way more powerful than a court system because we're trying to change a culture here. Like, remember, we're living in a rape culture and culture is changed and influenced by peers and the people around you. And a story that I find, like, that made me really happy, like, obviously not happy, obviously it started bad, but, you know, whatever, um, was that a um, girl at college reported a sexual assault. The college basically did nothing. And then their mutual friend group took it upon themselves to be like, you are not welcome here. Like, we will not invite you to any parties. You will not, you know, you can't hang out with us. Like, you're not going to have any friends. You leave, basically. And he did. And that means the friend group did way more than the uni could have ever done. And that is so much more powerful than the uni or the, I mean, I think the union college obviously should have kicked him out. But if the union college had kicked him out and then all of her mutual friends still remained friends with him, that probably would have been a worse result than the fact that she had solidarity in that. And I think the thing is as well, if you're, you know, if you're a 14 year old boy and you find out that the 16 year old boy, two years older than you at school, got kicked out of his friend group or, you know, got lost his spot in the rugby team or got expelled from school for doing this sort of thing, then that tells you that you can't do that sort of thing. But right now, not many young men have seen any form of accountability for rape because we don't have any except the criminal system. And I think a massive problem is again it's like this binary of like you go down the route of like trying to get someone you know trying to get someone in a courtroom and then trying to get them prosecuted and then getting a guilty result uh all that sort of thing or full denial there's no space there for apology validation trying to do better trying to restore relationships friendships and i'm not saying that every form of this is restorable but a lot of the testimonies I read on teachersconsent.com like the vast majority of them were teen on teen perpetrated and perpetrated out of ignorance a lack of understanding of consent and I'm sure as they got older with deep feelings of regret about the issue so how can we prevent that from happening in the first place and how can we say you know we don't want to 
send a 15-year-old boy and a 15-year-old girl through a criminal system and we don't want to send him to jail. We want to look at how we can change culture and have empathy through that process. Yeah, how can we do that? Obviously, consent education is a huge part of this and the majority of your work. What should it look like? Like, what are we not seeing at the moment when it comes to consent education? I think we are getting better in this space and we do now have it mandated in the national curriculum. Thank you very much, (laughs) Chanel. (laughs) Um, Thank you to everyone who's a big part of that. But I think we need to have a more, like, positive, strength-based, like, forward-facing approach. Like, I still think... We're massively missing conversations around like female sexuality, around sexual pleasure, around not just how to not rape, but like what does good, healthy sex look like and what should it feel like and how can that happen? And I understand that it is potentially not entirely appropriate for a teacher to have that conversation with students. Um, But in terms of like as a society, as a community in like, again, like the rom-coms we watch, the TV series that go around that are like, you know, everyone watches at the same time, like the conversations parents have with kids we need to I think be focused on that a lot more and then another thing I really think we need to address is I think we are lagging in porn literacy I think it is starting to become better understood by the government and schools like the importance of having these conversations but I really don't think they realize how explicit it needs to be to counteract like a very dictating explicit medium that is consumed kind of like en masse by like young teenage boys especially we need a lot more conversations around it especially when at that age they don't know the difference between like now we're older we can be like oh it's not what real sex looks like Mm. that age how it's their sex education it's their sex education how can you tell the difference between you've never had sex before this is what you're being told that sex is and then it involves like some of the most fucking hectic shit that you could ever see in your life and you're like cool assuming that their first sexual encounter is going to be like that they want it to be like violent and degrading because that's all I've ever seen or known yeah I mean a thing I say all the time is that allowing kids to learn how to have sex from watching pornography it would be like teaching them to drive from making them watch formula one And, like, imagine how unsafe the roads would be if we just put a bunch of 16-year-olds out there who'd watch, like, three hours of Formula One on the roads to just, like, zoom around. And then that is, like, the sexual landscape of young people. That's so true. It's actually so true. It's like, okay, you're not going to do, like, a hundred and something hours with someone in the car. You're literally just going to watch Formula One and then go do it. Yeah. There you go. Car crashes, crazy. Wonder why that's happening. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Well, there is unfortunately so much that does still need to change but Chanel like you are a huge force of having this conversation and making it happen and this book is now part of that and I'm so stoked it's out in the world and I'm really excited I've literally sent so many photos to so many people yay um, and I'm literally (laughs) forcing them to read it and I think yeah I'm so stoked that it's exists and you wrote it and that you exist so (laughs) I'm stoked you exist (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for um yeah having a chat to me today thank you so much Hey, thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Um, go check out Chanel's book. Yes, honestly, I feel like everyone should read it. Yeah, there's so much that she covers that I think is so valuable if you didn't hear, like stuff that we didn't even cover in this chat. So um, yeah, share this podcast as well to all the people in your life that you think need to hear it. And remember that you can always DM us on our Instagram. At Triple J The Hookup. Or you can email us if you're old school, thehookup at abc.net.au. We'll catch you next time. Bye.